0: I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This is Alpha Chat. It's a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. This is our last conversation from Atlanta, where we just spent four days at the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. Colby Smith writes about emerging markets for Alphaville. She and Mark Blythe of the Rhodes Center sat down with Adam Posen. Adam Posen is the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He has been a bunch of things, but among them, part of the rate-setting committee for the Bank of England. We turn to Mr. Posen when we need a broad sweep of how assets move among countries. And in fact, that is exactly what we got this time. He talked about the dollar. He talked about Rome. Mostly, he talked about how to make China's financial sector more reliable. But to get to China, we had to start at central banks, which are always political institutions even when they act independently. That's true in the United States. It's true everywhere here's mark so i'm
2: going to lead off with the uh central banking issue so 20 years ago now, Adam wrote a couple of pieces, which I still use in class because I think they're, they're lasting and brilliant and pertinent, and uh, they're about uh, the credibility issue of central banks, number one, how they hang everything on credibility. And the second one is, you know, do you really get this kind of disinflationary bonus, the free lunch that's meant to come along? And Adam's conclusion on this, which was very interesting and very prescient, was if you have a big financial sector, then you kinda have a central banking system that works because they care deeply about inflation. Now, I wanna start off with this for two reasons. We're in a very strange world. We live in interesting times, as the Chinese like to say. So before we pivot to China, let's start here. We have a president that's not only beating up on China because of issues of trade, he's beating up on the Fed and one of the implications of Adam's analysis way back then was there's a politics of central banking and a distributional politics. And is Trump actually smarter than we think in the sense that he's aware of that distributional politics, and he doesn't like the way it plays out? He wants the Fed to be nicer to his
1: constituents. Is that what's really going on? Actually, Mark, I think that's pretty much right, in addition to A bunch of other factors. As you know, whenever a government official makes a decision, it's just like in a normal town hall committee, you have one decision but six reasons for doing it. So I do think Trump's desire to pander to essentially white, male, working class, lower middle class people in the U.S. fits with a historical tradition of bashing the Fed, of pushing for cheap money, and so on. In some ways, it may be right at this juncture. There are a lot of serious people who you and I and others are friends with who are pushing the Fed not to be too aggressive about tightening. And we're in a low inflation environment. Nonetheless, Trump's motivations for bashing the Fed and the utility of bashing the Fed are pretty questionable. I'm really gratified, sincerely, that you're still using my pieces from then. And I do think they've proven out in the two fundamental senses you said first that it's more about what the fed actually does than about credibility so this abstract thing i actually think it's stupid for trump to bash the fed but i don't care that much unless congress reopens the federal reserve act this isn't going to affect anybody's credibility we saw that in japan all kinds of people said oh my god the central bank is in cahoots with the government and they're going to spend 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 well there hasn't been any credibility loss on inflation in Japan. But the second point you raised, which was really the fundamental one, Mark, is this idea that there are distributional effects of monetary policy. And at the moment, there's an unlikely coalition of those of us who worry about African-American unemployment, people out of the workforce, and small business, petty bourgeoisie types who support Trump.
2: So that's the American politics. Let's take central banking as our pivot point and then go to China. They have a pretty credible central bank and yet they live in a very politicized system, way more politicized than ours, particularly with the current leadership. How does that play out? How should we think about central banking in China and all of the rumors we hear about massive debts from corporations, etc.? How should we think about this stuff?
1: Well, there's a political economy aspect, and then there's what the central bank and the Chinese officials are facing right now. In terms of political economy, I once asked the now-retired, very impressive governor of the People's Bank, Zhou, what does this mean? You don't have central bank independence like the Fed or the ECB or whoever. And he said to me, I'd rather not have central bank independence because it means I'm in the room for all the decisions and I get to talk. If I have independence, then I'm outside the room for a lot of the decisions and I get critiqued on my stuff. And again, this is paraphrasing him. I, I can't quote him from memory perfectly, but I've heard that kind of thing also from emerging market central banks that we're the one repository of technocratic expertise. We're the one people that are not corrupt or at least less corrupt than data driven. So you want us in the room on fiscal policy. You want us in the room on financial policy. And part of the deal to do that is you can't do that from, from a central banking independent perspective. And just one last sentence, I'm actually very sympathetic to that. One of the things I got into in disputes when I was at the Bank of England was the idea that some of my colleagues at the Bank of England were holding forth ahead of an election on fiscal policy. And I thought that basically ruined the deal. They had no business talking about that if you're going to be independent.
3: It's interesting though, because over the summer when we saw the big currency crisis happening in Turkey. One of the major motivations for that was the fact that people questioned the independence of the central bank. And it wasn't until, you know, September when the central bank raised interest rates uh, pretty drastically that the Lira stabilized and the economy basically was able to kind of be on a little bit more firmer footing. So in a sense, our emerging markets kind of caught between this bind of being in the room and making sure that fiscal policy and monetary policy are coordinated, but then also showing this credibility to international investors especially those countries that are highly dependent on those capital flows.
1: I think, Colby, you're raising a great example, because we did see this in Turkey, and there was a run on the currency and a run on the banks, and not a consumer run on the banks, but a capital stop. And the turning point was when the Central Bank of the Republic of Turkey raised rates the same day that Erdogan, President Erdogan, came out and said, don't do it. You know, so that was a very strong signal. But I think it's important, this goes back to some of the things Mark and I were just talking about. It's important to see this as less the central bank independence as a factor in itself and more about it's a signal. Erdogan has thrown literally tens of thousands of people in jail. He's gotten rid of generals and admirals. He's gotten rid of judges, all of which are supposed to be independent as well in Turkey. So it's not so much the legal independence of Central Bank in Turkey, it was that there is a coalition of financial markets and people who have an interest in this who protect it. And so again, it's brave and great that the Central Bank of the Republic of Turkey stood up that way. But Erdogan's decision to respect their independence is driven by more deep factors. It's not just the flag Central Bank independence
3: and so i mean in talking about this connection between you know central banks and government setting fiscal policy i mean obviously in china the big concern there is the debt situation with the local governments as well as with corporations and so there's been this interplay i guess with monetary stimulus from the central bank um, we saw them you know cut reserve requirements on friday there's this kind of push and pull between kind of overstimulating the economy and risking, you know, some kind of debt overhang and issue there. How do they reconcile those
1: two goals? It's a good question. But the thing is, Colby, for the central bank in China, in fact, for the leadership in China, however you want to define it, they've actually got more tools you see part of the issue in the last few years that kept the central banks kept coming back to in the rich countries in the global financial crisis or the north atlantic financial crisis was that they felt they didn't have room to use fiscal policy or politically they couldn't use fiscal policy and they were in the midst of already bankrupt banks in china's case right now they have plenty of room to use fiscal policy they can do social welfare state for their consumers and citizens which there hasn't been much of They can do direct fiscal spending. The problem's been, and the IMF has spoken about this, and previous US governments have spoken about this, and independent economists in China have spoken about this. The problem has been that they've insisted on using stimulus through the banking system and monetary policy that isn't just generally affecting credit conditions, but is really shoving out directed credit. And we know that that's a very inefficient way to do policy. So to me, as often is the case, people focus on debt levels but they focus on these gross debt levels and not on the net savings in the society. China has a huge amount of savings. They also focus on bad institutions, but they don't focus on who's got the backstop. China's got plenty of room to backstop it. So they actually have a much cleaner path if they want to. There is the trade-off you said, Colby, that if they don't do something on fiscal policy and the central bank wants to improve financial stability, they can't just force out credit.
2: But is there a way in which finance in an authoritarian country like China, so we're mentioning Turkey and the fact that Erdogan can make people disappear and so on and so forth, well, China's beginning to behave very much that way as well. So I think we have this, perhaps have this, kind of Italy model in our head for China, which is you've got some zombie firms, you've got some zombie banks, nobody wants to resolve, we're kicking the can down the road, we're storing up trouble. And we have this idea, this template, this Western model, whereby, well, what you do is you get a bad bank and you put the assets in the bad bank and we resolve or whatever. And I keep thinking that if China's going to resolve things, it's not going to look like that.
1: I completely agree with you, Mark. My colleagues at Peterson Institute, Nick Lardy and Martin Chorzempa do some writing on this, and I'd encourage people to look at their work. But my personal take on this is similar to yours, except the comparison to me is less Italy and more South Korea and Japan. Right. That They too, they had zombie firms. They too had bad banks. But they did a better job of getting the rest of the economy functioning despite that than Italy has done. And because one of the key similarities to China is not that they're Asian, it's that they are surplus economies in multiple senses. They have fiscal capacity, they have trade capacity. And so there is more leash to run that. But my colleague, Nick Lardy, again, to cite him, we're releasing a new book by him at the end of this month, The State Strikes Back, in which he argues that things have gone wrong the last four years. Not that it's a Western style, oh my God, things are gonna blow up but that in the Eastern style, that the share of capital going to the zombie companies is getting much worse. The productivity, the returns on capital are going down. Again, this is fixable, but like Japan, like South Korea before it, it's something that, in my view, it's more than kicking the can down the road, but they can let it go, it's just wasteful. Final point is your colleague, Colby Martin Wolf, did a good column about this just recently in the FT, and he talked about multiple factors, but I've spoken with him and he emphasized this state intervention as well. So again, this is not so much the level of debt that counts, it's the way the political economy, as you say, Mark, they're getting more and more authoritarian.
3: The other external factor here that we have to consider is obviously the ongoing trade war. I mean, how much of the internal struggle do you think in China currently, from an economic standpoint, do you think that is a product of the trade war as opposed to, you know, its own internal situation. I mean, how much kind of emphasis do we need to place on the trade war in terms of the shifting sentiment that we've seen in China? I mean, obviously, the slowdown was happening long before, you know, Trump was elected, but it obviously has exasperated things.
1: Yeah, I think that's about right, Colby, that it's it, it was already underway for very fundamental reasons, and in fact, partly... To the degree that she had a positive economic program it was that we were not going to go for growth at any cost and the people's bank of china was very strongly supporting that so there has been a slowing of the target and arguably of potential growth Uh, what's the reasonable number but just as in the u.s the trade war just makes things worse and it makes things worse as you said through sentiment I've been, as head of the Pierce Institute, as a pro-globalization person, you know, people come to me and they're like, oh, how bad is the trade war going to be? What's going to be the effects? And my colleagues like Olivier Blanchard had a panel on this yesterday here at AEA, and we've done a lot of work with others at the IMF and the World Bank on this. Basically, the answer is you can create as bad an effect on the trade war as you want by assuming however much of a confidence hit and an investment hit. But it's, it's an assumption. What the trade war does is it makes inefficiency a bigger issue, inefficiency through lack of competition, inefficiency through putting sand in the gears of production, inefficiency by constraining markets. And so this erodes potential growth, but it's not about the short-term slowdown. Again, exogenously, a bunch of people in China can panic and say, oh my God, this is terrible, but that's basically exogenous. I'd like to blame it on the trade war, but I don't see it that way.
2: So I wonder how the Chinese actually do see the trade war. And here's what I mean by this. So let's go back 20 years. Starting in about 1999, the whole of Asia decided to run a giant surplus against the rest of the world in reaction to a crisis. And since 2011, the Europeans have been trying to do the same trick. Now, if everything sums to zero, then somebody has to be running the corresponding deficit, and that's us. So that's kind of the macro constraint. So if I'm China, and I'm looking at this, I know that my exports to GDP peaked in 2006. I know that I've got this thing called One Belt, One Road because I'm fed up holding dollars and dollar assets. I want to build real assets with those dollars and not just sit dependent on your cash. So if I was a Chinese trade negotiator, I'd be saying to the Americans, dude, we know this. We want to become a large consumption economy. We are actually weaning ourselves off of exports. What the hell are you doing? What do they think of what we're doing? Because it doesn't seem to make any
1: sense again, very astute observation, Mark, and as someone who talks a lot with Chinese government representatives, admittedly the ones who speak English and choose to talk to Americans, but nonetheless, that is a lot of the issue. I just wanna make it a notch more complex than what you're saying. So China and Asia diverged because China starting in '06, you you're right, peaked in net exports. And in fact, they're basically running balanced trade with the world right now. They just have a large trade surplus with the, bilaterally with the U.S., which everybody does. But globally, they've gone basically into balance, and the share of net exports in total growth each year has gone down, 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 down. So it's even more than what you said, because there are other countries in Asia, elsewhere, Singapore, Switzerland, Norway, Korea, who are still making it really a goal to run a a current account surplus. So China has even more gone down that road than we give them credit for, because the Americans at least some Americans, focus on this ridiculous bilateral trade deficit, which we know doesn't matter. But the second thing is, like you say, what did the negotiators say? There are people in the background who are trying to say, also via the IMF discussions, the G20 discussions, academic discussions, you know, this is, to the degree, this is something, it's a macro problem, and it's about surveillance. And yes, we can start stimulating our economy in more constructive ways and invest more. But the... U.S. has to get its savings together. It has to change its competitiveness on the fundamentals and so on. Um, Or we can all just agree that the U.S. is the anchor currency, and that's life, and the U.S. doesn't have currency crashes, and therefore it's okay. And frankly, that would be my preferred option. But none of this has anything to do with the Trump negotiating. So the Trump negotiating, as we see it, and my colleagues Chad Bound and Mary Lovely Peterson have done a lot of work on this as well, if you want to look into that some more, www.piae.com. Sorry, Colby. But I I think there are, again, multiple motivations. There's a direct, ideologically and politically, steel and autos are symbolically important to my constituency, therefore we have to promote that. There's a direct, ideological, self-defeating, stupid, but ideological thing. We need to reshore backwards industries that we can't support at this wage level. And then there is, unfortunately, also a sense that China represents a national security threat and the economics. And this is what I wrote about in Foreign Affairs about a year ago. The economics security divide is illusory. That's what Peter Navarro believes. That's what Robert Whitehyser believes. That's what President Trump believes. And so, therefore, the goal is not only to rebalance or to deal with economic asks, but to actually harm China, or at least impede China's economic and technological development. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that, like in the Soviet Cold War, you try to restrict them from getting very specific limited military use technologies. But there's no other purpose served by impeding China's technological development, neither security nor economic.
3: That's what I find so interesting about the state of negotiations here because originally it was starting with this bilateral deficit and that was the main focus. And now over time we've seen, you know, the goalposts change to some degree. So it becomes about intellectual property, it becomes technology transfers and a lot of this military component that you mentioned. So I mean what does this mean for the ability to actually resolve this?
1: It is a, this nest of issues and the technology thing is another interesting example, because clearly there has been intellectual property theft and what we call forced technology transfer in China. The question is how important actually is that? And how destructive is it and and how much other things you want to throw away in pursuit of that? Of course, there are a bunch of American companies who will complain about that. There were a bunch of British companies when the Americans stole the technology for woolen manufacturing in the late 18th, early 19th century who complained about that. There were a bunch of Chinese who complained when the British stole the technology for growing tea and took it as intellectual property, copyrighted seeds to India to compete. So, you know... It's not a question of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is fine, but it's just we've all survived IP theft for a long time. So if you're a Chinese negotiator, even if you're coming in in good faith, even if your goal is to make this problem go away, it's very hard to understand and get the U.S. government at present to take yes for an answer. And so we've seen repeatedly offers from the Chinese officials of things that would benefit certain industries like agriculture, steel, or autos, Uh, liberalization of certain industries and market access, proclamations that they would be more serious about IP theft. Now, I'm willing to be perfectly skeptical that they can deliver on a lot of that, but nobody goes into a trade negotiation and says, yes, I will completely change my entire economic system so that you don't put tariffs on. I made a comparison in an article six months ago, I called the economic trade war is Trump's Afghanistan. It's open-ended, it's pointless, there's no concrete victory conditions. There's no way he can say this is enough. Now, in the cynical sense, he can show up tomorrow and accept the deal, but he's built up so much of this that I'm not sure some of the people in Congress and some of the defense establishment in the US will accept it, even if he accepts the Chinese offer. So
2: let me put my Peter Navarro hat on. (laughs) Not that that I wear it very often. So here's a different way of thinking about this. I just want to throw this out to see what you do with it. So American corporations extract, by some estimates, 80% of the value from global value chains. And that comes from intellectual property rights protection, mainly. There's 2,000 largest companies by market capitalization in the world, 1,600 are American and everybody loves our stock market because basically our companies grow faster. So is there not some argument that, yes, everybody does IPR theft, but we live in a world in which IPRs are so important to differential growth such that our companies outperform everybody else, our stock market, our wealth is dependent upon these things. Shouldn't we defend them more rather than having a more lazy, fair attitude towards, well, everybody steals and we get along?
1: nice try i mean that was very convincing as that was my best navarro no that was, that very was. Good. It was very good i mean it was more convincing substantively i have no idea whether it represents him but basically every statement that was made was incorrect let's work it backwards you think about growth differentials what we really care about is per capita income and U.S. per capita income growth has not been superior to most other G7 or G20 economies for a long time. We've grown more because we had more population growth because we were younger and in immigration. And of course, we're messing that up now, too. But leave that aside. So the idea that this system has created enormous benefits is actually questionable. Second, the idea that this is what, of all people, Bob Reich aptly termed the who is us question. You know, The idea that we get very large benefits from being the headquarters companies or the, the tax domiciles, excuse me, of multinationals is an empirical question. And the evidence seems to be yes, but not huge. And especially when we let them play all kinds of tax games. So even that premise empirically is false. Thirdly, the issue of the, these 2,000 or 1,600 top companies that are American, that it comes from IP. It actually, remember, most of what we make money on is services and not industrial goods. And so a lot of that is about processes, about human capital, about management techniques, about culture, about brands, a lot of things that there is no IP theft because it's about the making and the doing, not about the substance. And then finally, if we're talking even narrowly on the benefits of global value chains, as my colleague Mary Lovely from Syracuse and PIAE has shown... The kinds of tariffs that Navarro and President Trump have put on are devastating to American value chains and messing up global value chains around the world. And this is what we're seeing. And I made the case a while back that this is going to make the U.S. much less attractive as a destination for foreign direct investment. And that's what you see. I pointed this out a few months ago. Foreign direct investment on net in the U.S. falls off a cliff starting in early 2017. Hmm. I wonder why. And that's not a China effect.
3: So what's the alternative then? I mean, if it's not the U.S. market, then which market are they going to?
1: Well, I didn't say it wasn't the U.S. market. It's just we're conflating benefits to the stock market or corporate shareholders and benefits to the real economy.
2: But maybe that's their co-constituents. Maybe oh, there yeah, is no yeah. contradiction in I, that I case. agree,
1: but we should make it clear that, make it clear that, that that's, that's, what that's what's going on. And if, if, if you decide in an election that the majority of people who vote in the U.S. are comfortable with or explicitly want an economic policy that's set for maximizing stock market values for listed companies. I think that's wrong. I'll argue against it, but that's, you know, they have a right to do that. But let's be very clear. If we're talking about the kinds of things that Trump and Navarro and Lighthizer and others of that ilk invoke, which is the future of America, the safety of America, the American workers' well-being, this stuff doesn't serve that. So when you say, what's the alternative? I mean, this is a really interesting question, Colby, is where does financially the investments go? And there, clearly, there is a huge preference in the world for the U.S., for dollar-denominated assets, for U.S. domiciled assets, for U.S. assets, full stop. And this is something that's not about China, per se, right? This is something that's been true for a very long time. You could argue, in fact, that this is a contributor to why the U.S., growth has been as relatively good as it's been in a world where our education system is terrible, in a world where we underinvest in public investment and so on, and we don't save anything. So, you know, so arguably that is important, but why is there this huge preference for dollar assets for US treasuries and dollar assets more generally? And a lot of great people have done work on that. The international economists and the generation behind me Uh, Ellen Ray, Gita Gopinath, Pierre-Olivier Gorinchas, and many of their co-authors have done really great work on this. But essentially, at some point, you just have to accept revealed preference. That, Richard Portis sort of pointed this out, that if you did an optimizing portfolio model, um, we are so far from what people's portfolios should be in terms of the overweight on dollars combined with the overweight on home assets in most people's portfolios. And so there's clearly something there.
2: Is that something there enough to, let's say, weather the storms that we've created for ourselves? Or are there really serious structural risk factors out there? Or are we still, in a sense, the lucky country?
1: I'll give you my informed speculation. My views are the U.S. is not so much the lucky country as the least ugly country. We're having a least ugly contest. And the gap between the U.S. and an Italy or a China or now a U.K. or so on is very large. And we might be eroding that gap by doing all kinds of terrible, stupid things and counterproductive things. My fear is in the short term, we may actually be maintaining the gap because the spillover effects of the U.S. behaving negatively are driving down international commerce and safety and secure assets for everybody. And so therefore, you know, the relative gap, there may be a couple countries that pop up as safe havens and a couple countries, especially middle-income emerging markets that get hit worse. But broadly speaking, you know, the average ugliness level is going up. The US least ugliness gap may be staying the same, fluctuating, getting a little bigger. Another way of thinking about this over-preference for dollars is that there is a huge cost to switching because there's enormous network externalities to everybody using the dollar. And we've seen this, and Gopinath in particular has written about these issues of invoicing. And there's nothing legally that restricts people from invoicing in Chinese renminbi or in euros or whatever, but every time we look, there's only a little bit of that. And so I think we may be eroding it, but it's gotta build up a lot of costs before you switch. A very clear example of this is the hubbub over, sanctions and the US government using SWIFT and the payment system to extraterritorially punish people who do things they don't like. And there's threats about involving that in the US China dispute now. And the Europeans and the Chinese have come out very explicitly say we'd love to have an alternative system. So we're building up resentment, we're building up the attractiveness of wanting an alternative. For the time being the costs of switching are so enormous.
3: And also when you know leading up to 2015 there was some momentum behind china's currency it was edging up in the share of international payments Um, we saw it being used you know the dim sum bond market was growing and 2015 that all seemed to change it was actually a pretty specific date in august when they had the two percent devaluation So there's a sense of, you know, they had to reorient their approach to handling this short-term capital flow issue and kind of put off this longer-term plan. But the counterpoint to that is we're looking on far too short of a time frame for China and that they never said that, you know, internationalizing the renminbi was going to be something that could be achieved within even a decade. Um, So there's that sense of, are we kind of writing off the currency too soon? Or are there just too many contradictions within China's economy at this point that that eventual goal can't really be achieved?
1: I I think it's a lot that eventual goal can't really be achieved. So but let's step back a moment, Colby. And you're right that there was this period where the Chinese government, with People's Bank of China backing, was talking about the internationalization of renminbi. They wanted Chinese renminbi to be in the SDR, the IMF's official currency basket, and have things go with that, and that did come to an abrupt end. I think Yu Yongding, one of the noted economists in China, was very prescient and clear about saying, this is a bad idea, it's putting the cart before the horse. I think, speaking from my point of view, and I also said this at the time, Look, the fundamental issue in China, going back to portfolio diversification, even if you allow, you know, you've got trillions of dollars in savings, leave aside safe the official sector savings, the household savings, business savings. And unless you're Jack Ma, 99% of your savings are in renminbi assets. And so even if you think China is just as good or has a brighter future than the U.S., you have an enormous impetus and enormous motivation to diversify abroad. And this is what they found out when they opened the capital account there was huge outflows and you don't even need to go into other things you can just say this is obvious i warned the u.s treasury about this in 2001 i said stop saying you want a market determined exchange rate in china because what you'll do is you'll get a massive outflow it'll be destabilizing to china and it will massively over inflate the u.s dollar this is not constructive that's what happened and then once they put on capital controls it's fine so from a stability point of view so I think there's that fundamental issue. Now, again, that would be a transitional factor, but it would be a huge transitional factor. And our colleague, Olivier Jean, who teaches at Johns Hopkins and does a little work with us at PIE, had a very nice paper last year talking about, if you let the be fluctuate, how big this would be. But two other points, sorry, really quickly. One is when we talk about internationalization, though, and I want to be very clear that there's a reserve currency, you know, and that it's all about Barry Eichengreen and other economic historians, as is well known, have established, you can have multiple reserve currencies. If you define reserve currency in a reasonable way, which is you can issue debt in it and people use it. You know, the pound is a reserve currency. Swiss franc is a reserve currency. Yen is a reserve currency. Renminbi can easily become that kind of reserve currency. Mm -hmm. So let's not, I know you weren't saying that, but let's not forget that. But the final thing is, going back to what Mark was saying earlier, this is ultimately authoritarian politics do matter. So just as the quasi-authoritarian politics we're getting in terms of economic interference in the U.S. are eroding the absolute quality of U.S. assets, even if not the relative quality, in China, do you really sit there and think, oh, my private property rights are really secure here. I'm going to keep all my assets onshore in China or put more assets in renminbi. And the answer is no. So ultimately, to me, that's why I'm skeptical about internationalization of the renminbi.
3: I mean, they have pursued and continue to pursue these kind of piecemeal policies to do just that. I mean, they've scaled back some of the language that they're using from, you know, the 2015 when they were accepted into SDR. Um, It isn't this big grand plan. They haven't really mentioned it, honestly, that much. So do you think there's that acknowledgement of putting the cart before the horse now that they're kind of taming down their language? Have you noticed in talking to Chinese officials that that's kind of been shelved for now?
1: Yeah, I think quite reasonably. I think it's more a recognition than an acknowledgement. Understandably, like any government anywhere, you sometimes don't say, oh, I made a mistake. Sorry. You just, if you're good, you recognize you made a mistake and you stop doing it. And that already gets you credit compared to a lot of governments. So I think that's the way you see it. But otherwise, Kobe, I completely agree with you. They they seem to have recognized this is not a priority they should be pursuing, it will have a lot of transitional costs and it's not worth it.
2: So let me try and close this out by going back to where we started and with a a provocation, which is the following. So maybe the politics don't matter that much. So we've got a president here who's beating up on the Fed, but as we've established, it doesn't really matter. And we have authoritarian governments undermining, if you will, their international credit quality. You've got China that has a kind of quasi-reserve currency, but you wouldn't trust it that far. You've got a dollar lock on everything. We are still the most attractive horse in the glue factory. We haven't mentioned Europe. They have their own particular Hotel California problem with the euro. So it's kind of a quasi-reserve currency, but at the end of the day, it just doesn't have the liquidity and safety of the dollar. So these big structural factors really seem to be driving it. At the end of the day, how much is Trump noise rather than signal, if we follow this analysis through? Does it really matter, or are these big structural factors what we need to pay attention to?
1: No, I think it matters less than some people say, and it matters less than I would like as a morality play, because of some of the welfare implications in terms of distribution to people, in terms of the way emerging markets, but also minorities and women at home are treated. You know, as Krugman and many others have repeatedly remind us, economics is not a morality play. But I think more importantly, it does matter in the following sense, that the absolute quality of the economic system, of the US economic system, of the global system, is going down. I'm supposed to speak later today on an ASSA panel about uh, fragmentation or integration of the world economy. My answer is going to be corrosion. It's it's not really fragmented. It's just we're getting more holes in it, and it's less it's less useful. And, and so that feeds into the long-term productivity growth, the long-term prospects. And that's why we're seeing this much more frankly In investment than in trade and so it does matter but it doesn't matter in the short term and it doesn't matter frankly on the as you said mark on the best looking horse in the glue factory but you know it took the Ottoman Empire the Roman Empire a few hundred years to fall apart Rome provided a lot of public goods and it was far more attractive than any of the alternatives at the time But living in the Roman Empire in 350 was much less, from an economic point of view, beneficial than living in the Roman Empire in 100. And I think that's unfortunately true as a result of Trump now.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: Thanks. That was great.
0: Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville, but as always, this is a reboot. We genuinely want to hear from you. We want to know who you are, how you listen, when you listen, and what you want to hear. We delete emails that don't spark joy at alphachat at ft.com. For my part, I promise not to buy so many dollar-denominated assets.